Come with me and you'll be in a world of filthy entertainment. Welcome everybody to our 10th episode of the magnificently foul Nasty Pasty podcast. Yes, it's moi, Mr. Andrew Roberts, on another escapade into the degenerate scuzz that is the video nasty era in Britain, where old ladies scowled and MPs howled at the disgusting perversions of the man on the Clapham omnibus, frequently known for both working in Manchester factories and getting high on video horror. As you can guess, I'm picking out those particular pustules that weren't infectious enough to be excised by Dr. DPP, but instead they were amply disinfected before submission to Nurse BBFC and escaped being listed on the World Health Organization's Video Nasties list. Those that did make the medical grade to be classed as dangers to UK society can be found on other podcasts like the Video Nasties podcast and the Strange and Deadly show. Give them a listen, go on, you know you want to. But not before you've listened to this one, of course. So we've discarded the decadence and the class of last week's Jello films by moving on to a rather more dirty genre in the meth spoon of the horror world, the Rape and Revenge movie. Now, there were plenty of this genre on the Video Nasties list, so it's well worth a few episodes to focus on some examples. But first off, let's have a rundown on what the genre actually is. Now, on a basic level, Rape and Revenge is pretty much exactly as it sounds. A victim suffers a rape in the first half of the film, while the second half focuses on the revenge sequence against the perpetrators, committed by either the victim herself or the victim's friends or family. The first act can end in the victim's death, or she can survive, but the story does not stray too far from these conventions, except in films that are just not of the genre who merely cherry-pick the rape and revenge element. Now, The depiction of rape in cinema has been prevalent since the very dawn of film, May Marsh's character in D. H. Lawrence's Birth of a Nation in 1915 has to evade the persistently lustful advances of the African-American renegade Gus, so much so that she jumps to her death rather than be raped by her attacker. 1931's Safe in Hell depicts a prostitute escaping from a false murder charge who then becomes the object of rapacious criminals on a Caribbean island. 1948's Johnny Belinda and 1950's Outrage depict two women's reactions to a violent rape. Even the famous Gone with the Wind in 1939 featured the rape of Scarlett O'Hara's character. The first film, though, that could be considered a prototype of rape and revenge is the 1960 Swedish picture by Ingmar Bergman, The Virgin Spring. Now, set in medieval settings, the film concerns a young girl called Karen, who is raped and murdered by three herdsmen, who eventually go on to stay over at Karen's parents' home. When they discover what's happened, the father enacts a brutal vengeance on the rapists, and finds his daughter's body at the source of a spring in the film's conclusion. A lot more complex than most of the later entries in the genre, it explored themes of innocence and religion in a fairy tale narrative, and was pretty much remade by Wes Craven in the controversial Last House on the Left. The very next year, the film Something Wild depicted a female victim who, after being raped, struggles with trusting another man who appears to grow fond of her. Roman Polanski's Repulsion in 1965 explored the psychological trauma inflicted on a young girl who was raped and is sort of a rape and revenge tale, with her reaction simply aimed at the wrong people. Male rape was briefly depicted in the 1972 backwards thriller Deliverance, and a more troubling depiction of non-consent was shown in 1971's Straw Dogs, which has caused a lot of trouble in the UK. 
These previous two films have elements of rape and revenge, but the first true entry in the genre was Miyazaki's I Spit on Your Grave, which became instantly controversial for its graphic depiction of sexual violence and the revenge aspect of the film. Now, since that entry, several films have been released, such as Lipstick, Abel Ferrara's Miss 45, Savage Streets, Death Weekend, etc. It's debatable whether the depiction of rape is actually necessary in film, especially in the way that it's often portrayed. Quite often females are depicted in a sexualised way, or the focus is on the rapist who takes the centre stage of the camera, almost as though to use rape as a spectacle to be shocked by. While this is particularly exploitative, it also doesn't seem to help the issue that rape portrays in real life. Often rape is portrayed as an afterthought with no real impact in film, especially in the case of male rape, which is often portrayed as comedy, despite the chilling implications if the gender was reversed. Also quite troublingly, female victims tend to have the rape element of their character taking up the bulk of their characterisation, with little to no exploration of what they were like before the rape. Having said that, the rape and revenge genre, while exploiting the depiction of brutal sexual violence, at least depicts the females as capable and strong women, who eventually defy the oppression of their ordeal and take vengeance against their attackers. The genre has in recent years had a feminist reappraisal, and has been discussed as a visible change in the attitudes to the idea of rape, with even modern depictions such as the Kill Bill films, the Curl with the Dragon Tattoo, and Teeth, as proof as pos- uh, that we are tackling the issue much, much more sensitively than we used to. But of course, rape culture is still prevalent, with the corruption of Hollywood coming to light every day, and this is in the instance of recent revelations about Harvey Weinstein and Kevin Spacey, but even historically in the case of Bernardo Bertolucci and Roman Polanski. So clearly we do have still a ways to go to tackle this huge problem. Little bit of a maudlin subject, folks, but anyway, we'll start by explaining a little bit about the films we're covering today. So it's 1980s Terror Express, or La Ragazza del Vagone Leto, and also 1979's Last House on the Beach, or La Settima Donna. Now, most of these films came out in the aftermath of Miyazaki's I Spit on Your Grave, and they take slightly different takes on the genre. Terror Express is reportedly more of a mild, sleazy picture that's set on a moving train, while The Last House on the Beach introduces a non-sploitation element into proceedings. But either way, we'll start with 1980's Terror Express.
Several groups of unrelated people board an overnight train heading over the border. They include a trio of troublemakers, David, Ernie and Phil, a young girl called Evelyn and her mother and father, a police officer and his convict escort Peter, a blonde prostitute Julia, two businessmen Hobbs and Willis, elderly couple Mary and Harold, and married couple Mike and Anna who are having marital issues. Later that night in the dining car, David, Ernie and Phil begin to irk and rouse the other passengers with their behaviour, prompted by the arrival of Julia. Hobbs later sleeps with her after the conductor mentions that she's a prostitute, while Evelyn's father also uses Julia's services, sleazily having her wear his daughter's nightdress and pretending that she's her. Anna encounters the three men and is followed to the bathroom by Ernie, who she proceeds to have sex with. Consensual at first, it soon becomes a rape when Phil bursts in and forces her into a threesome. David creates a scene when he can't get into Julia's apartment, culminating in the three men subduing the police officer and securing his gun which they use to force the conductor to lock the carriages, barring everyone from leaving. David attempts to have sex with Julia, but when she refuses, he threatens to rape Evelyn. And after pleading from Evelyn's mother, Julia agrees to let both David and Ernie have sex with her, while Phil forces the conductor to abuse her as well. Peter goes in to comfort Julia, but is beaten by the thugs, earning her affections. David initiates a dice game to see which man on the train will deflower the virginal Evelyn, her father included in the draw. Ernie declares himself the winner and has sex with her, seemingly consensual, while Mike frustratingly attempts to make love to Anna, and Julia falls for Peter and ends up sleeping with him. The train then seems to slow down, panicking the thugs who barricade the passengers in their compartments. Peter, however, has escaped, leading to Phil pursuing him outside, and culminating in a fight that ends with Phil being killed by a passing train. Ernie gets too eager to shut Mary up, and ends up accidentally suffocating her, and while being chastised for it by David, Peter embarks the train suddenly and throws Ernie onto the rails. David fires his gun at him, and takes Julia as a hostage, prompting Peter to be shot when he tries to rescue her. Just as David is about to finish him off, Peter suddenly stabs him in the gut, killing him and saving Julia, who embraces him. You missed some shrinkhood. Leave the boy alone. Somebody should throw them out of here. You don't want to be throwing that on your butts. Knock off the bullshit. Hey, come on, man. We were just Josh. In the hallowed words of David Schumann, man was made for play and reveling. That's David Schumann, poet. That's fine. Now, stop being uncivilized. That's very good coming from you, if your example is anything to go by. Murder, for Christ's sake, stay up. Shut up. I'll say what I damn well like. What do you mean by that, ma'am? Your prisoner shouldn't have been allowed to come in here. It's an insult to the rest of us. It's you who's uncivilized for spoiling our dinner. I think the lady's right. It's really a very unpleasant way to spend an evening. Peter. Excuse me, sir. If you like, you can have your dinner served in your compartment. Bring us some sandwiches. Yes, Terror Express came about in a rather interesting way, but at the same time a rather unsurprising way, considering low-budget filmmaking practices. 
Luigi Montefiore, more famously known as George Eastman, from Joe D'Amato's video nasty flicks Absurd and Anthropophagus, was working in Elio's studios in Rome, and noticed that there was a stationary wagon abandoned on the lot. On the suggestion of one of his associates, producer Manolo Bolognini, he thought of a script that used just the wagon as a set to create a movie. So he wrote a script set aboard a train, and it was written extremely quickly in just a few days. The script took inspiration from the 1967 thriller film The Incident, which starred Tony Massanti of Bird and the Crystal Plumage fame, as well as Martin Sheen as two thugs who terrorise a New York subway train. The wagon in question was due to removal from the studios in a fairly short time, so there's very little time for preparation, leading to a few concessions in terms of filming, mainly that the whole film was shot in the one carriage. The wagon would be moved about and altered to look like different carriages, and the actors would have to pretend that they were entering another carriage, even though it was the same set. To give the illusion of movement, stagehands would physically move the walls, which vertically slatted up and down, and some other crew members would run past the set with torches on the carriage, to give the impression of passing lights. The production did encounter a few snags, mostly difficulty in filming inside the narrow confines of the train carriage, since the crew could barely fit in. Carlo De Meo, who plays the sleazy Ernie, tripped inside the train when his death scene was shot, leading to a reshoot to show him correctly falling out of the train door. He was cushioned by mattresses prepared by stagehands in these scenes. Uh, Zora Karova, who played the conflicted Anna, she'd injured herself a few days prior to her rape scene being filmed. She was on a night out with friends in Prague when she was bumped and fell onto the ground, hurting her arm severely. During the shoot, she couldn't bend her arm and was reportedly unhappy with the way the rape scene turned out. Though she knew she could not truly act as if she was defending herself due to her injury, she trusted that the scene would be edited in such a way as to imply it, but ultimately the scene looks like she just gives in to the assault. This was backed up by her understanding of director Ferdinando Baldi, who was previously a teacher of literature, so she assumed that the scene would not be exploitative. Despite her disappointment in the way the film was directed, Carova reportedly found Baldi to be quite a charming man. Ferdinando Baldi was, quite frankly, an odd choice for such a film. It was the only film he did with a horror theme, as most of his films were westerns or comedies. He was also responsible for the 3D movie Coming At Ya, mentioned on one of my previous episodes as the catalyst for the 3D boom of the 80s. Apart from this example, he didn't do horror again, and the film noticeably isn't as violent or graphic as the other films in the genre, presumably due to his inexperience. That isn't to say that the film's easy to watch, as the sleazy male-dominated voyeurism that the film takes leaves quite an impression on you, especially with some of the dodgier themes, such as Evelyn's father lusting after his own daughter, most of the train demanding that Julia sleep with David for their safety, and the ideas that the passengers are offended by a convict when they're just as perverted in their own minds. This sort of sleaze is fairly typical for an Italian production, And in terms of casting, it's almost a who's who of the Italian exploitation world. Carlo De Meo was mainly a theatre actor who got his role in Terror Express in 1980, going on to appear in a variety of films like City of the Living Dead, uh, The Other Hell and Manhattan Baby. But he also appeared in two video nasty films, Contamination and Fulci's House by the Cemetery. 
Zora Karova, the Czech actress, she was also no stranger to nasty films, having appeared in Cannibal Ferox and Anthropophagus, as well as a range of other exploitation flicks, such as The House of Laughing Windows, uh, and Fulci's The New York Ripper and Touch of Death. Austrian actor Werner Pockerth, who played the unstable David, didn't get into the Italian scene until Dario Argento's Cat and Nine Tales, which was the spiritual sequel to Bird with the Crystal Plumage. Now, he also appeared in The Iguana with the Tongue of Fire, uh, the video nasties Bloodlust and Devil Hunter, and also the very silly Ratman in 1988. He sadly passed away, though, in 1993 in Germany. Juan Luigi Cirizzi, who played the, convict, um, the convicted uh, Peter, would go on to star in Andrea Bianchi's Burial Ground, along with fellow actor Roberto Caporali, who played the debauched father of Evelyn. Fausto Lombardi had his debut role in this film as Phil, and would go on to appear in other low-budget Italian fare, such as Don't Look in the Attic, Rat's Night of Terror, Shocking Dark, and also Zombie Flesh Eaters 3. Another recognisable face in the movie is Anna's husband, Mike, who was played by actor Venantino Venantini, who'd previously appeared in the Giallo film uh, Seven Deaths in the Cat's Eye, as well as the sexploitation films Emmanuel II and Black Emmanuel. After Terror Express, he went on to appear in The Beast in Space, uh, Cannibal Apocalypse, Contraband, City of the Living Dead, Cannibal Ferox, and Exterminators of the Year 3000. But the main leading lady, Julia, was played by Silvia Dionisio, who was previously married to director Ruggiero Diodato until 1979. She had appeared in a few films of the era, though, with some roles in Blood for Dracula, Waves of Lust, and Live Like a Cop, Die Like a Man. The guy who did the soundtrack for this film, though, was Marcello Giombaini, who had previously worked on the video nasties Anthropophagus and Hell Prison, as well as Waves of Lust, Actung the Desert Tigers, The Beast in Space, Hotel Paradise, Erotic Nights of the Living Dead, and Panic. The script, as mentioned before, was written by George Eastman, but it was supervised by Rosario Calento, who had worked in various capacities in Italian films, such as Continuity on Lenzi's Giallo Seven Bloodstained Orchids and Alien Terror, and supervising the script of the cannibal film Amazonia, the Catherine Miles story. Now, the original Italian release was entitled La Ragazza del Vagone Letto, which means The Girl in the Sleeping Car in English. And back in the day, Fletcher Video released an uncut version of the film in 1980 in the UK. Now, Fletcher Video was already kind of in the eye of the DPP due to their releasing of the video nasty Killer Nun, but in a rare turn of events, it's actually common knowledge that Terror Express was actually seized by the police during the raids. It's commonly assumed that the seizure was due to the similarity to the video nasty Late Night Trains, which also concerns a group of thugs who sexually attack a group of people on board a night train. The film, though, was not ultimately named on the official nasties list, but the film became nominally banned when the Video Recordings Act of 1984 came into effect, no version of the film has been released in the UK since, which means that the film is now unavailable as a result. And that was Terror Express. So let's move straight on to the next film, which is 1978's Last House on the Beach.
Two masked men rob a bank before escaping in their getaway car, with their accomplice scouting nearby for a place to lie low. The group, Walter, Nino and Aldo, descend upon a schoolhouse run by Sister Christina, while the girls in her care are rehearsing Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream, brutally murdering the maid, Tilda, in the, prog- in the process. One of the girls, Eliza, gets scared and goes upstairs to remove her costume, but Nino follows her and tries to rape her in the bathroom, causing her to stab him in the gut in defence. Under the watch of the men, Christina hopes that Tilda escaped, but this hope is soon dashed when her corpse is dragged through the living room. When one of the girls tries to run away the next day at the beach, the men threaten to kill them all if they continue to misbehave, and in retaliation, they forcibly undress Christina, force her to wear the nun's habit before raping her in a storeroom. Nino and Walter begin molesting the girls whilst watching an erotic film on the TV, but Aldo stops them, insisting that it's not appropriate right now. But unfortunately, one of the girls, Lucia, is raped in the middle of the night by Nino, held down by Walter, while Christina is kept from helping by Aldo. With the girls becoming increasingly scared and the men increasingly violent, Christina brokers a deal with Aldo that she will treat his worsening wound in exchange for the girls' safety. Aldo soon fixes their car, explaining to girl Margaret that they will leave them very soon, and that he doesn't want a part of the group's crimes and is innocent of any wrongdoing. A flashback, however, indicates that he's lying, that he's actually perpetrated the murders during the bank robbery. Eliza and her friend Claudia plan to escape after discovering the body of the local postman in a storage room. Eliza manages to escape the house, but is chased by Aldo and caught when she dives into the sea. As punishment, Nino rapes her violently with his walking stick, impaling her and killing her. Sister Christina discovers her corpse and finally snaps, injecting Nino with a lethal dose of medication and brutally gunning down Walter. Aldo flees at the sound of gunshots and holds Christina hostage, until he's held up by Margaret, who now does not believe his lies. She blasts him with the shotgun and allows the remaining girls to beat him to death, while Sister Christina looks on. Well? Why is nobody eating? Maybe it's because the food's poisoned. Or because they don't like our company. Nah, they're just pissed off because Sister ain't the pure white lily they thought she was. <laughs> and she's pissed off because we found out what she really is, man. <laughs> I made one serious error before I was a nun. I don't mean this as a justification of it. But since taking my vows, I've respected them. Well, I hope maybe we can all eat our supper in peace now. Hey. Hey, I think this broad's got accomplished. She never speaks. Here, have a drink. I never drink, thank you. Drink it. Go on, drink it! All of it. Bottoms up. Go on. 
Last House on the Beach, also known as La Settima Donna, for or The Seventh Woman in English, was one of a run of rape and revenge and home invasion films in the 1970s, and is specifically named after Wes Craven's initial genre breaker, Last House on the Left. Similar in tone to other examples like Death Weekend or Scream for Vengeance, the film concerns one of those gangs that, in a death wish kind of way, seems to perpetrate heinous crimes against other people without any real afterthought to the legal ramifications of such acts. Now, in real life, these gangs wouldn't last for two seconds and would promptly be arrested for even half the things that they seemingly get away with in these, but we digress. This film is a home invasion hybrid, mainly, with elements of non-sploitation, with the inclusion of Sister Christina as a character. Very similar in process to the characters of Diane in Death Weekend and Jennifer in I Spit on Your Grave, Sister Christina undergoes a process in this film in reaction to the sexual violence that she and her charges endure. But this one seems to be motivated by religion, in a very similar way to the home invasion video nasty, Fight for Your Life. The film seems to argue that Christina's religious virtue is under attack by the thugs. The first act that they perpetrate against her personally is the forced removal of her clothes, whereupon she has to don her nun's habit. She's then raped while dressed in this way, and the thugs humiliate her further by revealing that she's not virginal to the girls. In a religious show of stoicism, Christina explains this to the girls that she made a mistake before she undertook her vows. And the rest of the film plays out with Christina trying to turn the other cheek, even reading a Bible in one scene to try and stomach the men groping the girls in front of her at gunpoint. When she finally snaps, it's very telling that her revenge is prefaced by her removing the cross from her neck and the habit from her head, as though she's finally starting to renounce the faith that she's hold- that's holding her back. When the girls also get their revenge, in a sequence that Tarantino would reuse in his O'Day to Grindhouse films, Death Proof, Christina looks on and then removes her ring, almost in a final sense of renouncing her sense of religious faith. The symbolism also kind of extends to the girls. When the men invade, they're practising A Midsummer Night's Dream, a Shakespearean play that concerns young teenagers becoming lost in magical woodlands and discovering love and lust for the first time. The film is almost an obscene take on such a fairy tale, with the girls experiencing lust for the first time in a sexually violent and a violating fashion. The forest is even hinted to in Eliza's brutal murder, as this is perpetrated by Nino's walking cane, which is actually no more than just a branch. The erotic film that the thugs put on for the girls, however, in a little bit of trivia, is 1977's Eyes Behind the Wall, which is directed by Giuliano Petrelli. The central role in this film was played by Brazilian actress Florinda Balkan, who had previously appeared in the proto-Nazi exploitation film The Damned, uh, The Giallo Lizard in a Woman's Skin, Don't Torture a Duckling, Footprints on the Moon, and Flavia the Heretic. Balkan, who was born as Florinda Bulcau, visited Rome in 1967 and was recommended for modelling and acting by Marina Cagonia, who was a producer who worked on Footprints on the Moon, and she also became Balkan's lover over the next 21 years, until 1988. Balkan, though, has since retired, since 2006. Main villain Aldo was played by veteran Italian exploitation actor Ray Lovelock, who also contributed to the opening credits song in this film. 
He had appeared in some Polizio Tesci films, uh, Almost Human, and Live Like a Cop, Die Like a Man, as well as the video nasty Living Dead at the Manchester Morgue, as well as Fulci's later film Murder Rock. Sadly, Lovelock deserves a special mention in this episode, as only a mere two days ago at the time of recording, Ray Lovelock passed away at the age of 67 from cancer. Lovelock's roles were a challenge to him, whether he played a good guy or a bad guy, and some of these parts he really disliked, but he accepted them to give himself and his family money to survive and to have a good life. A really lovely work ethic and a wonderful actor. He'll be sorely missed. Flavio Andreini, who played Walter, had appeared in 1978's Inglorious Bastards, while Laura Trotter, who plays Claudia, would later appear in Lenzi's video nasty Nightmare City. Sherry Buchanan, who played the unfortunate Eliza, had previously appeared in What Have They Done to Your Daughters, A Tentacles, and the Section 3 video nasty Zombie Holocaust. The music was composed by Roberto Pregadio, who'd worked on other nasties like SS Experiment Camp, as well as Jess Franco's Cannibals, while producer Pino Barici had also produced the nasty film Late Night Trains. Assistant director Francesca Roberti had multiple interactions with other Italian productions, such as working on the continuity in Argento's Suspiria, as well as supervising the script on both Tenebrae and Stuart Gordon's film From Beyond. But one of the more well-known Italians on the film's production is director Franco Prosperi, who'd worked as a writer on Barva's The Girl Who Knew Too Much, um, Amazonia The Catherine Miles Story, and the late cannibal film The Green Inferno, which we've covered on a previous episode. Immediately, though, just from my own knowledge, I did recognise the name as the co-director of several Mondo films, like Mondo Carne and Africa Blood and Guts, but there does seem to be some conflict on both IMDb and the internet in general as to whether there's actually two different people named Franco Prosperi, but for that reason, I've included both of them on here. The film was released in Italy in 1978 to a rather disappointing box office return, but it subsequently went on to VHS and had a release from Cine Hollywood in the UK. The print used was uncut, but it was released under the very simple title, Terror. Cine Hollywood was not in the DPP's good books as it had released several offending obscenities, such as Devil Hunter, Cannibals and Werewolf Woman, However, it's pretty certain that this film was seized simply because it shared its release title with an actual nasty, which was Norman J. Warren's 1978 slasher film, Terror. Because the video nasties list that was carried around by raiding police groups, it didn't actually specify the release company, so officers would simply seize any film which matched the title. And regardless, the film was made illegal in the wake of the Video Recordings Act, especially since the film has failed to materialise in any form since the pre-cert VHS tape. It does, however, have an uncut release in the US on DVD. Thank you. 
And that was Last House on the Beach and the last of our films for this week, everybody. So thank you very much for listening to this instalment of Nasty Pasty Podcast. And I'll see you next week with another duo of disgusting debauchery. The theme of the next episode is a return to the world of Jello films, but in a slightly tangential sense. We're covering two pseudo-Jallo pictures, which includes 1971's Short Night of the Glass Dolls by Aldo Lardo, and 1980's Macabre by Lamberto Barber. Now, these two examples are both stylistically Jallo films, but they've got some major elements missing that make them somewhat different from what you'd expect. But until then, thank you very much for listening again, and I'll see you all next week. Sayonara! Sayonara!